most preachers and teachers, we're trained in expository preaching, and I love expository preaching. But in the last 15 years, I've really come to the conclusion that one of God's primary methodologies of communication is storytelling. When the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 were given their creed, they, they were told, when your child asks you why you believe what you believe, tell them the story of your release, your redemption, your freedom. So right from the outset, God is saying, I want you to encapsulate your covenant values within the concept of story. And then when Jesus comes, you would think, well, obviously, he's the best communicator in the world. You would think he would use the most profound and the best way of communicating these, these truths to the world. And Matthew 13 makes it clear that he never taught anything without telling a story, a parable. And so when you see those two ideas in the Old and the New Testament, you realize that undergirding all of his communication is the idea of the story, the story of salvation, the story of God. And I am a passionate believer that we need to encourage people to find their subplot in God's big meta-narrative, the big story. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 244. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. And the voice that you heard is that of Robert Ferguson. And truth be told, that is a blast from the past. You see, the episode that you're about to listen to was recorded all the way back in December of 2020. Myself and Nick Cady got to speak with author and lecturer and biologist and Hillsong teaching pastor, Robert Ferguson, uh, all the way back then. Uh, we speak with him about the importance of storytelling, uh, the importance of e evoking imagery in our sermons that connect with the heart and the meta narrative and the mega narrative of life. He's an engaging, well-read, informed conversationalist, and I loved having that conversation back then, and I do hope that you enjoy listening to it right now. You see, the reason why this is being rebroadcast is because this is a big week in the life of the Expositors Collective community. I, along with Nick and many other leaders, speakers, and attendees, we're all beginning our pilgrimage to the beautiful state of Idaho to go to Boise for our training weekend, which is taking place this Friday and Saturday, the 14th and 15th of October. It's a pretty busy week and I didn't have time to schedule an interview with anybody else. So you're getting a blast from the past. Welcome to pandemic. 2020. Guys, actually, I had COVID while we were recording this interview. I had a, a mild case. And so although 2020, it's thankfully long gone and over, uh, this conversation still does carry weight. And if you didn't listen to it the first time, then I'm so glad that you're able to listen and learn from Robert Ferguson about the power of story. 
Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. Uh, myself and Nick Cady, uh, we have the privilege of speaking to Robert Ferguson about uh, preaching and teaching and, and storytelling. Um, Robert, uh, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being with you. Uh, Nick, also, thank you for joining. At, at the very last minute, I, I pulled you in because I, I, I want you in on this conversation. My pleasure, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the conversation myself. Well, let's, let's get straight to it. Um, Robert, often the very first question that I, I ask people on this podcast, kind of as a way even to, to get to know them, um, is could you tell us about the first time you ever uh, preached uh, the Bible? Yeah, absolutely. I remember it uh, tragically well because it was a horrible sermon. <laughs> oh, no. They usually was, are. They usually are. Yeah. yeah. I was I was uh, I became a Christian at university in uh, 1974 and I joined a university group and they went to a particular church in fact it was a small Methodist church the Carlton Gospel Hall and they used to invite the students to speak and I was a literally a brand new Christian and they asked me to do a Sunday message. And I had no idea what I was doing. I was terrified. I spoke on 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20, uh, which where David tells Solomon, be strong, be very courageous, don't be discouraged, don't be fearful. And that literally became my testimony. I was terrified before the sermon and discouraged after the sermon. <laughs> And then what was really weird is that on the same day, an Anglican church invited me to preach uh, on the same day. And I'd net, so my second sermon was in an Anglican service. Uh, I pr preached on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, and the Carlton Gospel Hall invited me back. The Anglican church never invited me back. And when I went back to the Carlton Gospel Hall five years later, they said, wow, you have improved a lot in five years. <laughs> it was before technology. Nothing is recorded. Did you have uh, much time to prepare for that second one? I mean, did they ask you that day to preach or did they give you some heads up? They gave me a few days, but I was just foolish. I mean, mm. on your first Sunday, you've never preached in your life. To do two different sermons in two different settings is ludicrous. I should have just stuck with the first one. But uh, anyway, I didn't. So did you get much um, like like feedback in that? I mean, you said you weren't invited back to one. So you take that as well, that didn't go so hot. But was there much feedback or constructive criticism? It's interesting. When I first started out, there was none of those sort of things. Now it's just a normal practice. If you want to get better, you have a, a team of people, a group of people, some friends with you who inspire you, help you, encourage you, support you. But in those days, you just did your thing. This was back in the 70s. And the first 5, 10, even 15 years of my preaching was I was just making it up as I went along, uh, watching people, learning as best I could. But uh, in those days, you just didn't give feedback. Even, even when you were in a church, people didn't tend to give you feedback. Why, why do you think that is? Or, or why do you think it's changed since then? I think, to be honest, it's a cultural issue. Back in the 70s, if you gave people too much encouragement, 
you, especially in England, you were considered to be uh, big noting them, making them be arrogant. You tended to take people down rather than build people up. So the idea of uh, any comment that was made was usually critical rather than encouraging or supported or why don't you try this to be better. Uh, they, there was an old adage back in England, back in the 70s, uh, where people, the, you know, the board of a church would say, um, uh, God will keep them humble, we will keep them poor. So that was the general attitude that you were meant to be poor and humble, and much of that was to do with discouragement. You were discouraged as you went along rather than encouraged. It was really a survival of the fittest, to be honest. Wow, sounds like a, a healthy environment to uh, to be part of. And and with the lack of um, even positive feedback, is that is that um, are you familiar with tall poppy syndrome? Yeah, well, Australia is a is classic. That's how it works here. Would you mind maybe explaining for the uh, <laughs> the non-Australians listening um, how tall poppy syndrome maybe um, contributes into the lack of feedback that you experienced? Well, many of many of your listeners from the states would assume that everything in other countries is exactly the same culturally as the states. So if you put your head above the uh, above the parapet in the states, you'd be commended. You mm-hmm. rise above the crowd. You'll be given an opportunity to sing on American Idol. You'll have your <laughs> moment of fame, yeah. and everybody will think you're wonderful. Whereas in this country and in many other countries, if you just rise above the crowd, you're assuming that uh, people assume that you're arrogant and proud and will push you down again. And uh, Australians do it by humor, but they will tend to take you apart. So they they will they will... In, in Australia, we actually have to train our American students who come over, who see us joking with one another all the time and often being very rude, even from the pulpit. And they just think it's just shocking. But it's actually part of this tall poppy syndrome. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, so I live in Ireland and we we call it slagging, that it's just the responsibility to, to you know, to keep people humble. And, you know, my wife and I have, we've both kind of picked it up and we have to be careful when we're visiting relatives in the States to tone it down a little bit because people here are really affirming and don't like the constant teasing. (laughs) It's called sledging here. So slagging, sledging, same difference. Um, okay, so on that on that fateful Sunday back in the seventies, did you go to bed that night thinking like I've I've discovered it? This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Oh, absolutely not! I was terrified of public speaking, and I'm still, to be honest, nervous of public speaking, which is why I do a whole chapter in my book on uh, how to overcome the fear of public speaking, because uh, this was the last thing I wanted to do. Even though I was called into ministry from an early point in my university course, I was doing a degree in zoology. I wanted to be a biologist. God called me into the ministry, and I was like Jonah. I ran away. I ran in the opposite direction. I didn't want anything to do with the ministry. I didn't want to be a preacher. My school report said this boy cannot express himself in public. This was my worst nightmare. And here you are, <laughs> not just teaching and preaching for the past 30 years, but like educating and helping others to do the same. Exactly. It's it's a strange thing. 
I, I say to people, God will, like Jonah, will, he knows what's best with best for you. And if he calls you, he's going to equip you. So I should have understood that. But I was a, a little like C.S. Lewis. I was a reluctant convert and a reluctant preacher. <laughs> so in the years that have that have followed, you, you mentioned that when you came back to the Gospel Hall five years later, they said, hey, you've improved since then. And then I'm going to assume there's also been in the 25 years since then, there's been improvement. So the question I'd love to hear is like, how have you grown since then? What are the ways that you've grown as a teacher and preacher from that first fateful doubleheader Sunday, two service Sunday? Okay. Well, firstly, when when I realized or decided to listen to the call of God, I assumed that what I needed to do was to go into Bible college. That's what we all do. I need training. But I really knew in my spirit that God wanted to take me another direction. And even though I wouldn't recommend this to people being involved in Bible college, I actually went straight into evangelism. So for the first six years of my full-time ministry, I was in evangelism, and then I became an itinerant teacher. So in all of those 12 years, 12 to 15 years, I never had any formal training in preaching at all. It was through personal devotion, personal reading, observation. And then when I came to Australia 30 years ago, I was thrown in at the deep end, and I was asked not only to be a teacher, but to teach in a Bible college on preaching and teaching. And suddenly, my study went through the roof. It was a very, very steep learning curve. Um, Robert, if I might ask you, what did the evangelist role look like for you? I mean, what did that entail? Look, we used to travel around England. Uh, We used to go to all manner of uh, venues. So I've preached in pubs and clubs and hospitals and streets. But we also had a big, this may sound strange, but we had a 3,000-seat tent, a circus tent that we used to take around England in the 70s. And uh, my role was not really actually the main evangelist. I would do uh, pre- and post-evangelism meetings. So I would go into schools and I would do assemblies. I would do classes because I was a trained teacher, I was able to go into schools. And I would often teach maybe 10,000 children in in a week. And then I would set them up for a series of meetings. And then after the meetings, the evangelistic meetings, I was in charge of the follow-up. So Mm -hmm. I would train the follow-up people. So even in evangelism, I was still involved in teaching. Teaching was always my, the thing that I loved more than anything. Hmm. Oh wow! So you've you've mentioned yeah you've you've grown in in confidence or or I don't know if confidence is the right word but you've overcome your reluctance or your nervousness uh, to to do that and now you're teaching teachers and could you speak for a moment about the the reach and influence preaching course um, that you've uh, you've kind of put together or through Hillsong Network has has come out to to equip people what. Like, what did you include in there for the sake of your younger self? Or or what do you wish that your younger self would have learned from this course? <laughs> well, uh, I wish I'd been uh, trained properly, but I wish I'd known the Bible better. I wish I'd known Jesus better. I wish I'd known my audience better. There's lots of things I wish. But um, 
so recently, the we have a network of churches. Hillsong has a network of churches, hundreds of churches that um, we all draw inspiration from one another. And so we decided to put out a, a simple practical course. So a number of our platform people, a number of our teachers and preachers gathered together, and we look at different subjects. We discuss things, but we also look at individual subjects. Sometimes I will speak for 20 minutes on the anointing and what that looks like. But also we do a lot of, um, I did 25 to 30, just four minute little pieces of information. The sort of the sort of thing that people always ask me in a class, how do you deal with hecklers? How do you speak, speak to the people on the back row? How do you use a microphone? How do you do this? People are always asking me these really practical questions. So the course yeah. is designed to answer a lot of those questions, which huge numbers of people are asking. And sadly, many of the books are all about theory and not much about practice. Yeah, I see that. Like there's there's the units and the units are kind of those big ideas, you know, biblical preaching, relevant preaching, transformational preaching. And, and then, yeah, there's these 25 other things about posture and preaching without notes and the kind of nitty gritty things. So those are the, yeah, it's, it's not only tips and tricks because there's these big grandiose themes that are addressed as well. So it's not like a great combination of these two. Well, look, I've done the same in my book. I've done 20 big ideas, but at the end of each chapter, I look at six tips and people who read the book say, look, I love the big ideas, but I'm really enjoying the tips because often people just don't talk about that. They don't know how to actually apply. And we as preachers and teachers and storytellers, we just assume things. We, we've been doing it a long time. I've been doing this for 45 years. I just assume certain things. And then my students will put their hand up and say, well, what about this? What should you wear? I mean, I never really thought of that, but... <laughs> Those are the questions they're often asking. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you just said it there. You said preaching, teaching, and storytelling. And, you, and you've given me the pivot because I want to talk to you about storytelling next. So why do you even why do you include storytelling in that, that list? Preaching, te preachers, teachers, storytellers. Like what is a storyteller? Um, how, how does God use storytellers? Well, most, most preachers and teachers, we're trained in expository preaching, and I love expository preaching. But in the last 15 years, I've really come to the conclusion that one of God's primary methodologies of communication is storytelling. When the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 6 were given their creed, they, they were told, when your child asks you why you believe what you believe, Tell them the story of your release, your redemption, your freedom. So right from the outset, God is saying, I want you to encapsulate your covenant values within the concept of story. And then when Jesus comes, you would think, well, obviously, he's the best communicator in the world. You would think he would use the most profound and the best way of communicating these these truths to the world. And Matthew 13 makes it clear that he never taught anything without telling a story, a parable. And so when you see those two ideas in the Old and the New Testament, you realize that undergirding all of his communication is the idea of the story, the story of salvation, the story of God. 
And I am a passionate believer that we need to encourage people to find their subplot in God's big meta-narrative, the big story. Okay, Nick. Nick Katie, the reason why I've pulled him in here. So, so, so Nick, you, you teach one of the modules at our training weekends on how to not be boring. And essentially it's the inclusion of like, not just stories, but, but viewing the sermon as a, as a story itself. Um, I, I'd love to hear the two of you guys interacting about how can the sermon as a story help communicate to the, the congregation? Yeah. So you know, Robert, I, I love what you're saying. And I, I think that the two are, um, very much, you know, to be used together. Like, um, I think that expository preaching definitely does not preclude storytelling. In fact, I think the storytelling, as you, you very point, well point out, Jesus never tells, never teaches without telling a story in every case. And, and one of the things that, um, that I have been, learning and, and wanting to share with others. And I'm curious what you would speak into it is this idea that, um, that we we should use a plot line format in our sermons in the sense of, in the same way that every story kind of follows some basic structure, which, which maybe you could expound on a little bit, but you know, the idea that there's a, a setting or an ideal, then there's a tension. You build that tension to kind of a fever pitch and then show how the conclusion of that uh, leads us somewhere. So we start somewhere, we realize a problem that is there and, and has been there. And then we see how Jesus is the great hero in the solution to the problem and, and how each text can be uh, approached through something like that. You know, having that kind of homiletical plotline format, I think, uh, is very helpful. And, and one example that a friend of mine pointed out, he said, you know, if your child ever asks you to tell, if the, your child's ever asked you to make up a bedtime story uh, on the spur of the moment, and if you've ever tried to do it, um, you know, you can do it poorly because if you just tell some facts, like there was a princess and then she did these things, well, it's not really a story. That's just some facts about a princess, right? A story has to have a problem and a conclusion and it takes you somewhere. And then there's a new reality based on that. So um, I, I would love to hear from you about this idea and and what you think, uh, why you think it's it's so I guess, integral to the way that people learn? Look, a brilliant question, Nick. Um, if, you, if you look through literature and nature and music, what you will find is the same story arc. Uh, it's basically, you can find it in Homer's The Odyssey, home, discovery, return, or a slightly large one, home, call, discovery, goal, return. And so even if you look in nature, you can find this idea. A bird will start at home, go out on a journey of discovery, and return home again. <clears throat> so that is a classic story arc, and you can find it in The Lion King. Simba starts at home. There's a, there's a call to become king. He goes on a journey of discovery. He reaches his goal to become king. And then he returns or the, the world is returned to the way it should be. You can see it in Star Wars. You can see it in The Lord of the Rings. It doesn't really matter what quest movie or book you read. You will find this story arc throughout. And, and so the reason that I use it is because people automatically engage with it. 
I make the big idea that I'm sharing the hero or the heroine of the story. And instead of following the five stages I've just suggested, home, call, discovery, goal, and return, I've changed it to S-T-O-R-Y, story. So I tell a story, I create tension, I make observations, I bring a revelation, and then I say, what are you, why, going to do about it? And so, as you say, absolutely, what I do is I do the whole the whole of my message is a narrative, but the story at the beginning is classic storytelling, then the tension, very important for a postmodern generation, then the observation section is like a topical message, and then the revelation moment is an expository sermon, and then the you makes it fundamentally practical. So, I'm actually using all the various skills of all the various books I'm preaching in one story arc. So I totally agree. It, I think, is a brilliant way of communicating. Yeah, And I guess I would ask you, do you have any reflections or thoughts on why it is that we as human beings resonate with this? Why is it that this appears in every culture in the world, right? That people tell stories that include, um, you know, an ideal, a tension, uh, a problem that leads you to the precipice of despair and then a resolution that changes your new reality or that, that gives you a new reality? Well, there is a sense in which God has put it into our very DNA. Everything in our, you know, everything about our makeup suggests that we have this storytelling idea. And, and if we're going to find our subplot in Jesus' story, we, we, he also needs to follow the story arc. So there is a sense in which Jesus himself follows this story arc. He starts at home. Uh, he in heaven. He there is, creates tension. He's called to go to the world in the incarnation, which we're celebrating uh, in uh, this month. Then he um, goes on a journey of discovery where he learns, goes through the, the 30 years of discovery process following all sorts of challenges and uh, temptations and difficulties. Then he reaches his goal, which is to die on the cross and to be raised from the dead and bring salvation to the earth. And then he ascends into heaven, returns home as uh, the conquering king. So, look, there is a sense in which not only God, but the way he makes humanity and the way he organizes the world follows the story arc. So there's something in us that automatically connects with us. We know where we are in the story. Mm. Are, are you familiar with the monomyth theory? Yeah. And the, yeah. And so, um, you know, this is something. So Joseph Campbell and all those people who've written about it. And uh, there are lots of other, there are other, other sort of ideas of, um, you know, and, and people have different ideas about why it's there. But of course, I believe in God. So I think that yeah. he tends to be the author <laughs> of that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, that was, that was C.S. Lewis's thing, right? With saying that, that uh, the gospel is the true myth. It is, it follows the, the narrative arc that all, all, stories and it's somehow built into us as human beings because this is the true story of the world the story which encompasses all stories which every other story is a reflection of yeah i don't know if you've read the writer's journey by christopher vergler but uh, he is a sort of, it's a sort of a little more modern than joseph campbell's book but uh, 
yeah, he talks about this monomyth and he talks about all these characters. One of the things that I love about that whole idea is that there are archetypes. Uh, there are archetypes in every movie or quest story, um, characters, particular types of character. There's a mentor, there's a hero, there's a heroine, there's a there's a companion, there's a there's a trickster, there is a there is a um, you know a a threat, if you will. And I love the fact that when I'm watching those movies or reading those books, you automatically connect with a particular a, a particular archetype. So I've never seen myself as the sort of when I'm watching Simba or I'm watching Lord of the Rings, uh, whatever it is. I'm not I don't see myself as Frodo. I, I've never seen myself as the main character in the movie, but I always connect with the companion. It's mm. as though suddenly when it talks about Sam or someone behind the scenes who is supporting the hero, that's the person I connect with. And Sam when I teach. When I teach on films uh, and movies, which sometimes I do, uh, that's what I'm trying to get people to do. Discover who you are by listening to story. Sam was the hero of the story anyway. I mean, we all know. Well, of course, maybe, maybe Nick, you and I have the same background. Maybe that's <laughs> what it is. Perhaps. But when I watched the film Chariots of Fire many years ago, obviously it was about Harold Abrahams and Eric Liddell, and they were both great runners. And if you see yourself as the hero of your own story, you tend to uh, con connect with those heroes. But behind the scenes, there was a coach by the name of Sam Mussabini. He was the one that flicked my switch. I was interested in him as a teacher and a trainer and a companion. I'm thinking he's the one that I like. Oh, it's fascinating. You, you know, one thought that I've, I've had, Robert, and I've, I've taught this to my church before too, and I'd be curious if you have any thoughts on it, is that when we do read the Bible as story and we read the stories in the Bible, you know, I know that uh, oftentimes people will gravitate towards seeing themselves as the hero or associating, as you mentioned. Um, but I think sometimes that can lead us to the wrong conclusions, right? If we always see ourselves as David in David and Goliath, we might be missing the point. Look, absolutely. Goldsworthy talks about this in his book. He said, uh, God is always the hero of the story. And uh, what Dave, if, if you want to relate to anyone in David's story, you, wouldn't, uh, you hopefully wouldn't relate to Goliath, but uh, the person that you are nearest <laughs> to is David's brothers. You are terrified. You are, you are unable to fight. You need someone to step up to the plate, defeat the enemy on your behalf, and rescue you. So David is the Christ figure, the messianic figure, and we are the uh, terrified soldiers unable to fight and unable to save ourselves. So, yeah, absolutely. God is always the, the hero of the story. And I think a lot of cultures have made us the hero, and that is a highly dangerous thing. That's why I talk about finding the subplot. I don't know if you've read Christopher Wright's book, um, How to Read... Uh, and how to teach um, and preach from the Old Testament for all it is worth. But he talks about that subplot and looking at the overarching meta-narrative. I think we're in a, we're in a world where postmoderns post hate meta-narratives. It's all about the personal story. It's all about the individual. It's all about their experience. And yet we must uh, maintain this concept of God's big meta-narrative. We find ourselves 
in his story. I've got this message that I do to uh, our master's students, which I've just recorded. It's called, You Are Here. And I look at the whole meta-narrative of, of the gospel and how you can unpack it. And then there's a big arrow uh, saying, you are here, where we are just a tiny, tiny dot on one of the words in the huge story arc of God. And I think that's a, probably a better a better way of looking at where you fit into the big picture. <laughs> Amen. Wow, this has been delightful. I almost forgot that I'm in this conversation. I'm just like watching and listening. I'm just like enjoying this so much. And then I realized, oh, wait, this is live. Um, <laughs> I, I need to say something soon. Um, well, well, speaking of the idea of like the, the hero of the story not, not being you, this is actually, Robert, something that I heard you say, I believe, like three and a half years ago. So there was a like a like a Hillsong webinar and there was like some track in there about teaching and preaching. And I, I came across it and I thought, hey, I'm I'm a teacher and preacher. I'm I'm really interested in this. And so I was I was watching this live. I was staying up late in Ireland to to watch this live thing that um, that you were doing with some other people. And this has stuck with me for a long time. And I've been I've been wanting to talk to you about it for a long time. So this is my chance. Um, I believe you quoted um, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, uh, which says, um, for we are not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. It's the CSB Bible. I just I just got it like a month ago. So everything's a little bit <laughs> different than how I, whatever. But it says, you know, we don't preach ourselves, but but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves as servants for Christ's sake. Um Sorry for, yeah. So often I would think of that verse and really emphasize that first idea. We're not here to preach ourselves. We're here to preach Christ. And and you reference that verse and and then kind I don't want to say emphasized at the exclusion of the first half, but you you did bring out the second part says that we we do ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake, saying that there is a hero and it's Jesus, but there also is like that supporting character, which is us. And then you kind of pivoted and talked about the importance of like telling our story as part of his story or in relation to his story. Um, so that I, I just had never really heard that before. Um, I, that kind of surprised me and, and stuck with me for a long time. Um, I, I think with my Christ-centered emphasis, you just want to say, we don't preach ourselves, we preach Christ. But but you're showing that actually, we actually do preach ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a really, it's a really interesting paradox in that verse. And I think, uh, I can't remember exactly the webinar, but I'm sure that's... Well, I um, sure do. It happened, it, trust me. <laughs> yeah, it's this tension. Uh, in fact, a couple of years ago, one of the colleges here asked me to do a PhD on preaching with them, and uh, they wanted the text that I would do it on. I'm, I've decided not to do it, but they, they wanted the text that I would do it on, and I chose that text, 2 Corinthians mm. 4, 5, because I think this paradox is really intriguing. In many, many books on Christ-centered preaching, it, it almost divorces the preacher from the message, but I think Paul never did that. He's, he said, um, throughout the Gospels, he said, follow me as I follow Christ. But he also said, follow me. Or in, and Hebrews says, imitate your leaders and the outcome of your life. And then in another passage, he said, 
if you do what I do, basically, the God of peace will be with you. It's an extraordinary statement. So um, I find it intriguing that in 28 chapters of the book of Acts, recording the history of the early church, three of those chapters are given over to Paul's personal story. And th this was really, in, th this was really sort of, um, this spoke to me when I read Greg, uh, Greg Heisler's book. I don't know if you've read it, called Spirit-Led Preaching. I'm and, reading uh, it right now. <laughs> it's next to me on my desk right now. <laughs> it's a great book. And he, he talks there, <clears throat> he talks there about um, uh, various people who have said that you, you cannot divorce yourself from the preaching. You represent your message. And he said, basically, when you deliver a message, one of the quotes in the book, he says, when you deliver a message, you're not just delivering a message, you're delivering a preacher. So he says, a sermon is a preacher up to date. And I find that a very, very um, challenging statement because we've got, uh, we live in a world where people think, well, I'm preaching Christ, but I'm living, uh, I'm living inappropriately. And I think that is because we've said, you know, if you preach Christ, it doesn't matter how you live. And I'm basically saying in that statement, Paul never said that. He said, I am my message. And if you, if you, if you see me, you'll see much of what I'm talking about. Now, obviously, we're not following Paul. We're following the Christ in Paul. Mm -hmm. And when we preach, people are following the Christ in me. But it is nonetheless in me. And this partnership, I find fascinating, even in when Jesus starts his ministry in Luke 4.18, when he says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. And I find that whole partnership of, the, of divinity and humanity, of, the, of us working together, is, is, would be worthy of further study. As I said, if I did a PhD, I think I'd try and do it on that. Well, well, yeah, okay. So I, like I... You may not agree with me, but I'm just throwing it out there. Well, I, 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 I don't agree with you, but I think I should. That's the thing. I have my own, my own background, my own issues, my own like probably emotional immaturity that has caused me to be formed into this person that really um, can be described as, you know, private in, in a good way or uh, aloof, <laughs> um, not really like sharing a whole bunch of my story I'll, because partly because I don't think people are that interested or maybe because I've sat under preaching that's very self-indulgent and just constantly referencing, um, you know, the preacher's life all the time. And uh, instead, maybe as a, as a reaction to that, just think, well, listen, who cares about my life or my upbringing or blah, blah, blah. This is what the text says. So I, I, that's where I'm at, just to be honest. And I know that it's probably not the best. I know. And, and when I do tell a story from my life every three or four weeks, the congregation really likes it. And I know that that's a valuable thing to do. And I want to get better at it. So that's kind of why I've ambushed you and, and asked you for, to help me get better at this. Well, I look, I've had to go on a journey with this, and uh, I'm considerably older than you, and maybe that's uh, to my advantage, because uh, I've gone on this journey. When I started in preaching, we were told in the 70s never to tell your personal story. Hmm. Very much preach Christ and him crucified. Never tell, no one's interested in any way 
Uh, it's just arrogance. It's pride. So even my points. If Sounds I like I'm pretty up to date. <laughs> yeah. I'm on the cutting edge of 1970. Yeah. <laughs> so even, even if I had three points or five points from a passage, I never even made up um, the points. I took them straight from Scripture. So on my first uh, messages, the the individual points were just phrases from the Bible because it was so Christ-centered, Bible-focused. Now, of course, you've got to be like that because we're proclaiming Christ and we're teaching the Bible. But as I've gone on uh, for 45 years, I've realized I cannot and I must not divorce myself from the message. Now, obviously, pragmatically, as soon as I start telling self-deprecatory, vulnerable stories at the beginning of my message, people in today's world immediately engage with me. But also, they remember it. And if I say, if let's say I'm teaching a big idea, some huge concept, the best way to start is to put that big idea in your own life. This is how I've engaged this big idea. So let's say I'm talking about the the mystical and uh, challenging topic of healing. I could start, if I was following the story up, by telling someone how I've been miraculously healed. And then I would move into the tension section and talk about what happens when you're not and times when I haven't been healed. So you've already, in the in the first five minutes, you're saying, I've been healed, and 90% of the audience is saying, great, but the 5% are thinking, what happens if you're not? So then you go there, and now you've got 100% of the audience saying, okay, I'm listening to this person now. Then you say, well, what do we need to know about healing? It's a mystery, et cetera, et cetera. And then you come to the main text. Would you like to know how to live a whole life? Let's have a look at Luke chapter whatever. Mm. So, so I think uh, it, it's a great way of opening people up. Yeah, just following your your outline, which I, I really like, it seems to me that you say you don't really get to the expository part of your message until the second to last part of your five five step process. So the resolution is it is that what the R was? Yeah, no, revelation. Revelation. And that is the expository portion. So I'm just curious what that looks like as far as maybe give us some proportions for your message. (laughs) Well, of course, it always varies uh, depending on whether you're speaking for two minutes or 35. But um, um, I, I again, follow the story arc. If you look at the big idea or the big moment in any movie, um, whether it be, you know, the, the, the killing of the dragon in The Hobbit or the the destruction of the Death Star in in uh, Star Wars, or the um, destruction of the Ring. It always comes four fifths of the way through the movie. So I actually do a lot of setting up. It's like an anticipation moment. A little like I was I was going for a walk with my wife this morning, and we were talking about the need for anticipation. And I said, "What's the point of Advent?" Why why do we have four, four Sundays before Christmas to set ourselves up for an event? And why did God announce that the Messiah was coming 
a thousand years before he came. I mean, what's the point of anticipation? And we talked about the fact that we need it in terms of preparation. We need it in terms of repentance and celebration. Even celebration requires preparation. So there's a sense in which I do the same with my message. I set it up. I create anticipation. I use rhetorical questions. I tell stories. And I hope that when I've told my first five-minute story, people are thinking, what is he on with? What's going on here? Mm. But they're intrigued. They, it's almost like I take them on a journey. And by the time that I get to the expository section, the revelation section, they're desperate almost to open their Bibles and say, well, what does it say? I don't uh, have any follow-up <laughs> to that. That was good. That was what I wanted okay, to yes. know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, well, here at the Expositors Collective, we're we're quite big. We're quite big. It's 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 in the name, so we're we're big on the yeah, expository thing. But but yeah, quite a, a good way to um to yeah to create the tension, and then to say and look and and the Bible has the answer or the Bible speaks to that tension. Um, so that's 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 valuable. I th- I uh, think one of the things that I've been I, another book that I would highly recommend is Graham Johnson's book. Uh, Johnston's book, Preaching to a Postmodern Generation, because he looks at the whole idea of how the world has changed. Interestingly, I moved to Australia in 1989, 1990, and that is uh, considered to be when modernism ended and postmodernism started. And so the idea of me moving to a different nation with a different set of values, with a different cultural norm, to a different language, and then uh, having to learn how to communicate effectively to an Australian audience is exactly the same as how we need to communicate effectively to a postmodern audience. I was born a modernist, but I preached to postmodernists. I was born English, but I preached to Australians. And I have to, I, I have to learn how to do that. And the in that book, it talks about the message never changes but the methodology must change. And that's where I think storytelling, um, we can relook at it. We can get caught up in a particular way of doing things. This is what expository preaching is. It's been in, in the world for hundreds of years. This is the way it's done. Look at the history of preaching. This is Bible-centered. But I think we've got to look at how to effectively communicate the audience to or the message to this audience and Paul interestingly in the, you know the first two chapters of Corinthians says uh, I determined to preach nothing except Christ and him crucified and then he says um the Jews are offended by it the Greeks are offended by it but I'm not going to change this is the gospel and then chapter 9 he says but to the Jew I become a Jew to the Greek I become a Greek so that by all means I may win some so the message doesn't change, but the methodology has to change from place to place. And I think that's we've got to look at the spirit of the age and say, what is the best way to communicate our gospel, our timeless gospel and this glorious book to this current generation who don't even believe in absolute truth? Uh, I've got to set the scene. And if I just pick up the Bible and say, uh, all right, let's turn to the passage of, that I'm preaching uh, for the last three weeks, Matthew, all the audience is saying is, what's Matthew? Why are you picking what? what you know, wh- who knows that it's true? So I like the idea of setting it up 
I tell a story. I say, why is this important? I create tension. We're in this paradoxical, challenging world. Here is the undergirding knowledge that you need. The Bible is true. It can speak to your life. This is why it's true. Now you're ready to listen to this expository message. So if you look at someone like Andy Stanley in his book um, on preaching, he leaves out that uh, he goes straight from, I don't know if you've read Andy Stanley's book, have you? Communicating for Change? Communicating for Change. A little bit, yes. Yeah, I haven't finished it. He talks about um, we, you, um, God, we, you, or whatever it is. But he goes through a sort of story arc, but he leaves out that and that undergirding knowledge, because it's he's speaking um, often to an American audience that goes to church, that believes the Bible, that believes in truth, although Barna tells us that that isn't the truth. I think something like 70% of American Christians don't believe in absolute truth, but that's another story. Um, the But he's, he's leaving out that necessary knowledge that I think is necessary and certainly hmm. vital in Australia. I, If I don't set it up, I'll lose the audience before I open the book. Yeah, Robert, what you're saying reminds me a lot of Les- Leslie Newbegin, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and his whole concept that um, we have to have a missionary encounter with our own culture. And of course it helped him that he lived in India for so many years and came back and experienced England as a foreigner again. Uh, I think that actually the three of us all have this in common. I, I lived in Hungary for 10 years as a missionary and, uh, and then coming back to the place where I grew up in Colorado, um, of course you see it with different eyes and you, you minister uh, in a different way. And I think that that that's important. Like you're saying, even somebody like Andy Stanley, um, and not, not that I would have, you know, be so presumptuous as to say what he needs to learn, but just to say that anybody needs to have this mindset that uh, preaching is essentially a missionary encounter with your own, with people that you're talking to, whether they're of your same culture or a different one. And it's this idea of building a bridge, but also helping them understand. Uh, one of the things that I think is important is that we, under, we, we want people to understand that this, all this storytelling and all of this setup, it is not to make the Bible seem more interesting than it actually is. It is rather to, and please tell me your thoughts on this, but isn't it rather to um, help people see the Bible for the great treasure that it truly is? Uh, look, absolutely. If um, you, you, you obviously do a podcast on how um, how not to be boring, and I think that's brilliant. But the Bible is not boring. It's one of the most fascinating, the most wonderful books in the world, and it's filled with flawed, broken people who have amazing encounters, and it's just a great book. Sadly, people just don't know it very well. But I love, um, uh, I mean, if you're expository uh, preachers, I'm sure you you love uh, Brian Chappell's book, Christ-Centered Preaching. But What's he used... Uh, he uses that. He says exeg- uh, exegesis and exposit- exposition is shedding or hermeneutics is shedding ordinary light, ordinary light on the text. And I love that phrase, the idea that it sheds light on the text. And I use stories as as uh, uh, ways to shed ordinary light on the text. So we read a, a strange story about David and Goliath. It, it's, it's thousands of years out of date. Um, 
we we just don't understand the idea of that concept at all. But if you talk about something similar in your own life, suddenly people are thinking, "Oh, I see where I could I could apply this." Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glancing at the at the clock, and I've been listening in on a very fascinating conversation. But I realize now I have the unfortunate duty of uh, of wrapping this wrapping this up. Um, so, so Robert, would you maybe tell us how how we could get a hold of of your book? Are you getting this? How can we get? Are you getting this? Well, the easiest way to is to go onto the Hillsong website, look at Hillsong Store. And you can get it, but it's also available at your local bookstores, uh, Amazon or any of those. Um, uh, I've also recorded an audio book, so that should be available if people are into audio books. So there's all manner of ways of doing it, but sim- there's simple thing. Go on the website, look at a Hillsong store, and that will tell you what to do. But um, it's called Are You Getting This? And uh, I hope you will be getting this. Yeah, and and I've I've been getting um, weekly emails from you. These these kind of like preaching tips that come out uh, one once a week. Uh, I I wholeheartedly endorse them, and I think that all the listeners to this podcast should should do it. It's a a free weekly short little email. Um, how can people sign up for that? Is there a way that you could direct us towards yeah, that? So so the best way to sign up for it, um, you can either um, go on my Instagram, uh, Robert Ferguson Teaching. And I record a teaching tip each week and a few other things as well. Or if you want access to this course that we do and the teaching tips, um, the you or the church can be involved to join our Hillsong Network. And again, go on, go onto the site, look at Hillsong Network, and follow follow that principle or follow that uh, where it takes you. Yeah, what fantastic! Yeah, in fact, I only just discovered the Instagram just um, about an hour or two ago. So I've been I've been living on these bare minimal emails when I realized I could get videos of you saying the same thing. So, so yeah, we'll we'll make sure that the listeners are able to to connect and to get these weekly little tips. I think it's really falls in line with a lot of our focus here. Fantastic! And look, can I just say it's bit I as you can tell, the three of us love preaching. We love talking about preaching, so we could do this for two or three hours and still uh, just be scratching the surface. But it's it's a fascinating topic, and I hope I hope uh, just our conversation has helped and encouraged people. And I'm a great believer in in just reading and and going outside your comfort zone, reading reading widely. Uh, and I'll often read books that, you know, I don't necessarily agree with, but they challenge me to my absolute core. And so I just recommend if your listeners are listening about preaching, just don't just stay in this tiny little way of doing yeah. things, but but branch out. Yeah, yeah. And you're modeling that. Um, it's been wonderful to hear you you quote from these even diverse kind of tribes and camps within even the preaching world. So you're you're modeling it and really encouraging us to do the same. Fantastic. Well, excellent. Well, thank you very much, Robert. Thanks, Nick, for joining us. And uh, I hope that this podcast and all that we do helps you to grow in your personal study and your public proclamation of God's word. Well, hey, thanks so much for listening all the way to the end. Man, wasn't Robert lovely? Wasn't that just a great conversation? I really enjoyed even re-listening to that Um, I think it's a classic episode, and I'm glad that it's getting another airing uh, here. So 
if you're listening to this on the week that it comes out, you know, I'm going to see some of you uh, in just a few short days. So if you are a listener to the podcast, uh, please come up, introduce yourself. I would love to make your acquaintance and give you a sticker. <laughs> and um, and if you are not coming to the training event in Idaho, well, that's okay. I forgive you. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> no. Um, make sure to be following our Instagram account, especially in addition to Twitter or Facebook or those other things, because there'll be lots of photos that are going to be put in our stories. So that'll kind of give you a glimpse into what you're missing out on. You might see some familiar faces and you'll get a taste for what's going on in Boise, Idaho this Friday and Saturday. And then also, hopefully, it will help you to make the journey for the next one. Uh, you know, we have stuff in, planned in the future in Texas, in Serbia, possibly Seattle. So keep your eyes peeled, keep listening, because maybe we're coming to you, Texas, Serbia, or anywhere else. All right. I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thank you.